Haggai's right near the end of the Old Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. It's a little bit of a difficult one to find. It's a really short one. So if you can find Matthew, it's probably seven, eight pages back. Haggai, chapter two. Hudson Taylor, you may have heard this quote. Hudson Taylor, the missionary, said, there are three stages to every great work of God. First, it is impossible. Then it is difficult. Then it is done. And perhaps you know the sense of this. Maybe in your life, maybe you wouldn't say it was a great work of God necessarily that you were doing, but uh, something that you knew you needed to do. Maybe that was obedience to the Lord. But it was daunting to you, some personal project, some relationship, some difficult conversation you knew, needed to have. But at first, when you came to it, it felt impossible. But God kept working in you, maybe, about it, to do it. And he gave you encouragements about it. And so you began. And it was hard. You realized how difficult it really was. And maybe a couple of weeks, a couple of months into whatever it was, your determination your resolve kind of waned and you just felt like, I can't do it. I can't do it. Maybe there wasn't the, the response that you were hoping for. Or you didn't meet the kind of success you had envisioned. You just felt like you were failing. But then God sent you some encouragement and you learned a lot and then you finished. At first it was impossible and then it was difficult. It was very difficult, but then it was done. And maybe as you look back on that, at each stage, you realize, actually, it was God who was helping me obey. God was enabling me to obey. He did this. This is very much what's happening in Haggai chapter 2 among the remnant of the people of Israel in Jerusalem. So Haggai comes near the end of the Old Testament. That doesn't always where the book is, you know, kind of situated in the, in the Bible. doesn't necessarily tell you its chronology, but some of the minor prophets kind of do. They're relatively in order. Haggai is relatively late. This is after the exile. The people of, you know, the Babylonians have come in. They've conquered the southern kingdom of Judah in 586. That's when the last one was. They took all these people to Babylon. You read about Daniel. He's in Babylon and his friends. Ezekiel kind of stops prophesying a little bit later than that. And these people, they, they're not, they don't have a land anymore, the promised land. They're out of it. They don't have it. There's maybe a few poor people left. But then 70 years later, Daniel's still alive. He starts praying. He reads in the book of Jeremiah. God said 70 years. So he starts praying. It's been 70 years. And uh, then there's books like the book of Esther, where the king just decides he's going to fund a trip back to Israel. Who's going to go? And people... Uh, people are going, but there's there's Jews in in uh, Susa at that time in the book of Esther, uh, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. There's successive trips back to the land. Zerubbabel starts uh, trying to lay the foundation of the temple. Things like this are going on. They're trying to rebuild their civilization after the greatest destruction they've ever seen. And what God is doing is kind of this this kind of a parallel in the Old Testament, to the Exodus. God brought his people out of Egypt. He redeemed them out of Egypt. Now God is bringing them from the ends of the earth. He's redeeming them from all of these foreign nations and bringing them back, fulfilling his promise. But they're coming back and it's a ruins. And it's a lot of hard work. If you think of the early 
you know, settlers in uh, the American colonies and how difficult it was for them and the pioneers out West. It's not an easy life when you're the first one back. It's hard and difficult and you don't have any of the conveniences. You have to do everything for yourself and you just have to survive. But as we come to the book of Haggai, again, I, it's been some time since I've been able to preach a morning and evening service together. But we did begin the book of Haggai in a few uh, messages uh, some months ago. And in chapter one, God really comes to confront the people because <clears throat> this comes as they've started the work on the temple, God's house. And then they left off. They stopped because it was hard. And they, they built their own house and they're saying, you know, it's not time to build, build God's house. And then, you know, they, they're finding some ease finally. And God is coming to them in, from the mouth of the prophet Haggai saying, is it really time for you to build your own houses when God's house is in ruins? And God's rebuking them. He's, he's challenging them about incomplete obedience. And what you see, we won't take the time to read Haggai chapter one, but if you want to read it, you could see kind of this theme that incomplete obedience doesn't bring God's blessing. And they were seeing that. God was saying, all of these things are happening to you. There's a definite lack of prosperity in your life right now. Are you going to put two and two together? The reason is you need to build the temple. I gave you this order and you stopped. It's incomplete obedience. You need to keep going. But then Zerubbabel, the, kind of the governor there, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest and the remnant of the people, they obey. They respond. They had tender hearts to the Lord. And, you know, Haggai preached, and they said, okay, yeah, we're wrong. We need to change. And if you see in verse uh, 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel of chapter 1, Haggai 1, 14. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, the spirit of all the remnant of the people. God kind of worked in their hearts by the preaching of, of his word, you could say. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. So there's a pretty specific date here. They did it. They started obeying. Now you come into chapter two and you notice how long has it been? That was the 24th day of the sixth month, second year of Darius the king. It's the 21st day of the seventh month. So it's about a month later. They've been doing the work. And I, I believe part of the theme of this first part of this passage, this word from God that comes to the people, they, they had been in a state of not completely obeying God. They were seeing a lack of blessing. But now as they've taken steps toward obedience, that can be discouraging. Sometimes when we haven't obeyed, what we need is we need rebuke. We need, we need a swift kick in the pants, right? We've got to get going. But sometimes once we've started doing that, we need encouragement. We need help. We need somebody to say, you got it. Keep going. Go do it. And God is so gracious to give us that. I think we see here from the people, and really I think we would all admit in our lives, that we tend to shrink back from completely obeying God when doing so feels overwhelming to us. It can feel overwhelming when God calls us to a task to obey him. And we tend to, we tend to shy away from that. But I want us to see tonight, and I, I really do hope you see this. When God calls you to a task that feels impossible to you, 
He will help you obey for his glory. God will help you obey. And Haggai 2 really demonstrates for us God's enablement for obedience. And I, I, I want to I want us all to observe that God will graciously enable us to obey him for his glory. It's not just for us. It's not just just because he said so, but because it pleases him when his people obey. But how does God do this? I think it's a a series of gracious actions that we see him taking toward his people. And I'll say these, and then we'll read the verses. In the first three verses, I want you to notice that God knows. God knows. And God is gracious to observe what's going on. And then in verses four and five, I want you to see how God strengthens his people to complete what he's calling them to. And then in the final verses, how God himself really gives the assurance and is is part of the work to make sure that he gets all the glory that he's due. God will complete what he intends to do through you. God will get all the glory he deserves. And God wants his people to honor him. So of course he's going to help them. So God knows what we're going through. God, God helps us in it. And then God actually is part of the working of it. Let's read, starting in Haggai 2, verse 1. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by, came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made to you, made you when I came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God is gracious. God will help his people obey so that he will be honored. And how? We said it. God, first, he he knows when the task seems overwhelming to you. You see, when, when does God resume speaking? He spoke to them at the end of the sixth month. He comes back in the seventh month. God's sensitive to the timing of events in our lives. They're a month removed from beginning the work. What is that? Well, that's long enough to realize how big the task is, how limited their resources were, how small their workforce was, right? Just enough time to start growing discouraged. I don't think we can do this. Do you see this thing? It's actually also, if you do a little cross-referencing, this day is the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles in the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Booths, where the people would celebrate. They would live in these little, you know, lean-to shelters as a way to, to commemorate 
God bringing them out of Egypt. They're living in temporary shelters. That's what this feast is about. To commemorate God rescuing them from Egypt. And they would do this at harvest time, you know, Thanksgiving time, like we would think of in our day. It's a time to remember God's guidance out of Egypt, his guidance through the wilderness as they were, as they were sojourning through it. God's blessings in the harvest. They're at the last day of that feast. So God's coming at a time when, do you think maybe they were doubting that? Is God really guiding us still? Is God really blessing us? It's a significant date to them, full, really, you could say, of spiritual meeting. It's no accident that God speaks through Haggai, again, on this date in particular, and this amount of time after the people began the work. So if you think about an amount of time in your life, is, does God care about this? Maybe there's a, a significant date in your life that when you cross that, you realize, I've been praying for this for so long. I've been, I've been seeking reconciliation for this for so long. And then it comes to some anniversary or you're trying to serve the Lord in some challenging way. And you come across some date that, that really just weighs you down. Or you're, you're coming together with God's people trying to celebrate something, but you're full of doubt about it. Do you think God knows that? That those kinds of things, even in our minds, that might seem so minor, and just the passage of time that might even just kind of be imperceptible to us, do you think God knows about that? Those moments when we might be discouraged, even being on the border of despondent? Of course he does. God knows that. He sees that. He's sensitive to that, and he cares. That's his grace to us. But he's not just sensitive to timing. I think you can also see here that God is gracious and and that he's alert to who in particular is waning in their determination. Who does he address? Speak now to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and to the remnant. God wants to make sure that the leaders of the work are addressed the remnant who is who is doing the work and also what is his question this is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory they started building in 520 they finished in about 516 they're conquered in 586 if you do the math this is probably the older generation who might remember they were probably kids and teenagers they saw solomon's temple they saw all that gold all of that beautiful artwork in Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. Now it's just a pile of rubble. They remember, and it's probably bigger than they than it even was, right? That's how our memories tend to work. It was more grand than maybe even it was. So God knows. God knows that there's this older generation who has a memory. God knows that there are these people who are doing the work, and there are these leaders, you know, if you think of these terms, the, the leaders, the people in charge of the vision of the work and the motivation the order, and the remnant, the people bearing the load, feeling the burden of the work. And then the people who have perspective, the people maybe who are kind of, they feel like they're running out of time and they're kind of waning in hope on God's promises. Yeah, is it, is it really? Is God really going to restore us? I've lived this long and I haven't seen it yet. 
Do you think God knows which of his servants are waning in motivation and maybe are growing discouraged? We just kind of make a parallel. Leaders, pastors, deacons, fathers, mothers. Any kind of any kind of worker, whether that's a church, just as as a, a lay person, or you know, uh, if if you're serving as a deacon, or kids as they're kind of under their parents, or parents as they're serving, any any kind of service and work. Maybe people who are older, does God know that you know it doesn't feel like to them like it's worth all that effort to obey again? Does it really matter? Has it mattered to this point in my life? Maybe they're, they're tending towards cynicism. They've seen too many prayers go unanswered, it seems. Too many failures, too, too much time before I see God's promises fulfilled. Does God see that? Does God know that? Does he care? Of course he does. That's why he's addressing these people and these groups in particular. He's alert to who needs encouragement. I think you get a little bit of a window into God's grace. He's just a gentle father. He pays attention. He's attentive to our cares and our burdens, and he wants us to bring them to him. So God knows when, and God knows who, but God knows more than that. I think as God raises this question in verse 3, you can see that God is concerned about what might deter us from obedience. What seems to be holding the people back and discouraging them? Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? And that really ends up being what the whole thing is about, the glory of the temple. God wants them to know that there really is glory coming. But what they see right now, it doesn't look like that. Is it really worth it? This thing is puny. It stinks. We don't even have any gold. What an ugly piece of equipment, furniture. What an ugly building. These people are probably in their 70s and 80s and 90s. But even as they're obeying God in building his house, they felt, they felt the inadequacy of their efforts. We, we can't build it as great as Solomon did. That was the golden age. We can't do that. But no doubt, they're also thinking on just the national loss they had experienced. This was, you know, this was the thing, what they all looked to. But this doesn't really bring them a lot of pride anymore. It's just shame. You know, we deserve that. It's because of our sin. So even though they're obeying, they're in the process, they couldn't achieve the greatness and the glory of their predecessors. It made them, made it feel like their work was pointless. But was it? Is that God's estimation of what they're doing? Of course, you know, God, God knows the, the human sense of the comparative glory. But God is pleased by their obedience. And I believe God knew that their perception of what was going on would discourage them. So again, I'd ask, does God know what perceptions we carry of success in obedience? You know, maybe you're, you're discipling someone and you just expect them to make progress more quickly. And they're not, and it's discouraging. Or maybe you're really trying to grow in speaking words of grace to other people. 
and you feel like you're making progress, but you're not seeing that reciprocated. You expect it to have more of an effect and it's just not, and it's discouraging. Or maybe you're disciplining your kids and you expect to see change in them more quickly. You're obeying the Lord in these things, but. Ugh. Or you're evangelizing. You expect to be, you know, just be more fluid with it or, you know, be more effective more quickly than you are. And Lord, I'm trying to obey. Why is it, why is it so hard? Why can't I make more progress? Or even just reading the Bible. You're trying to spend time with the Lord. You're trying to grow in prayer. You expected that it would be a little more fulfilling or that you'd be a little more consistent. And it's just hard. I'm trying to obey. Why can't I get it? I think you see here that God sees all that. God knows. God knows when the task feels overwhelming. And he knows how to help us. And So I think you see just God's gracious action toward us simply to observe our frailty. He knows. He cares. But then he helps. God strengthens you to complete what he calls you to. Verse 4. But now take courage, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. Hosts. As for the promise which I made you, or I cut with you, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. What is God doing here? He, he's encouraging them. This is how God works with us sometimes too. He encourages us back toward the work with his assurance. Don't be afraid. Take courage. Take courage. Take courage. And work. Don't stop. He's encouraging them back toward the work. And really, what is he doing? He's kind of diverting their gaze. He's directing their gaze back toward the promise of his presence with them. He says, go back and work, take courage, for I am with you. He assures them that he is there with them. And who, what does he keep calling himself? The Lord of hosts, the God of armies. If you want any one person with you, who do you want with you? You want that one, right? And God refers to the promise that he made with the people when they came out of Egypt, what was this promise? Maybe, I mean, you could look at the whole law. It's a covenant. If you obey, here's the blessings. If you disobey, here's the curses. But there are specific references to, I will be with you in your midst. And there was a very definite visualization of that in the form of what? The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. God was with them. He was with them and everybody saw it. Everybody knew that God promised that very specifically in Exodus chapter 29 and Exodus 33. So here, they don't have that visual reminder, but God is telling them, I am with you. I promised you that I would be, and I still am. Don't fear. When God is with you, who can be against you? And we could look at numerous instances of this throughout all of Scripture. God does this with the patriarchs, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He does it with Moses at the Exodus. He does it with Joshua and Israel in the time of the conquest. He does it with the kings. He does it with Solomon. He does it with Israel in the book of Isaiah. It's part of the new covenant. Maybe you even think when Jesus left the earth, and lo, I am with you always. It keeps coming up again and again. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. 
It's in Philippians. It's in Hebrews. It's in John. That was part of the great comfort that Jesus gave his disciples. And the blessing that we have is that I will send another comforter who will be with you. God is with us. When we're discouraged as we attempt to obey God, sometimes what we need is to stop listening to ourselves and our own sense of our obedience. And we need to start thinking about God's promise of help to obey and of his promise to be with us. Because what are these people doing? It's what we often do. We, we see the limitations. We see the challenges. Lord, I can't, I can't, I can't. What does God see? Does God see limitations? No, God sees his promises, his faithfulness, his presence. So as you find yourself kind of mulling over the impossibility of obeying God in some thing that he's given you to do, let that be a time that God is driving you to your knees. That's really the answer. When we feel that it's impossible, it probably is for us. So we should pray. We should seek the Lord. We should ask for his help. And the Lord does strengthen us with his presence. But we'll, we'll hasten on because I want to see the end of this very quickly. God sees, God knows, God helps. But I want you to see in these last verses how it's God who is, he's making a promise about the future, but he's emphasizing that he is going to do it. The glory of this temple isn't up to them. The success of, of the venture that they're setting out on doesn't ultimately rest with them. Notice all the times that God refers to himself, starting in verse six. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also in the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all the nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. This image of God shaking the nations. It, we're, we're in a stage with our younger child where she can grab just about anything and baby rattles are a thing right now, you know. Shake, and I seem to remember that that becomes even more like anything. You just shake it, right? And those little the, those little beads, they're nothing in that baby's hands. Watch out, baby toys. Like, they don't stand a chance, right? God's going to, he's going to shake the whole earth. He's going to find out what's in there. And it's going to come to him. He owns it. He deserves it. It's coming his way. Because it belongs to him anyway. Even the nations, these regimes and peoples they will feel this awesome power and they'll come with wealth they'll they'll come to show honor that's appropriate to the king and they will god says i will fill this house with glory this otherwise maybe unimpressive temple it's going to be glorious god's overseeing the timing of this he's overseeing the appropriateness of how people are acting he owns it all anyway the silver is mine. The gold is mine. Everybody's really just returning to him what's his. He doesn't lack anything. He doesn't lack money or capability. So even when his people do lack those things, when we try to obey him, we have this assurance that God is under control. God, God could send that here, and maybe he will. 
but he hasn't. And that's partly to keep me dependent. But God is overseeing circumstances. People, people are streaming to worship him and to honor him. And there's a definite view to the end of times here when Christ is ruling and the nations are, are under his feet. God knows how to get the glory he deserves. He will. And right now, it doesn't look that way. There are many who don't confess him, who don't honor him. But he's promising that his house in the future will be even more glorious than Solomon's temple. There's no need to mourn the loss of glory in the temple. There's no need to be discouraged in the work. If you read the book of Revelation, one day, God and the lamb will be the temple. God himself is the glory of the temple. He will fill that temple with glory as he comes down to it and fellowships with his people. And it's really interesting that God gives them this as a motivation. And I saw someone use the illustration of hiking. Uh, You may be familiar that uh, my manly brothers are more hikers than I am. Uh, I would like to go with them and do, do backpacking on this kind of thing. I don't know that I have the stamina for it, but you can just get this image of, you know, you see the mountain in the distance and it's like, okay, we're almost there. And it might be days away, but you can see it and you're going and you hike up this big hill and it seems like you've got to be right there. And then what's next? It's a valley. And you didn't see that coming, but this, this mountain, it's just like a magnet that keeps drawing you and compelling you on. That's kind of what God's promise is here. It's in the future doesn't really change the difficulty of their work right now, but God wants them to set their eyes on this thing. Look up. There's probably going to be a lot more valleys and a lot more hills before you get there, but, but keep looking, keep believing in this promise that I will fill this house with glory. I'm going to do it. And that helps them. When you look at the mountain, and you come to the valley, you come to the foot of another hill, that helps you take another step, doesn't it? It lifts you out of your own tiredness. Keeps you going. So God is calling these people to obey him, and they did. And and it seems that they're starting to, to wilt a little bit under the pressure. But God is helping them for his glory. He wants the task finished. He wants the nations to look to Israel again and to Israel's God. He wants worship to be established again. He wants these people to obey. That honors him. The result honors him. The final final goal of all this worship and glory in the temple honors him. But it's hard. It's a difficult task. We're not building a temple. But I think if we, if we think in terms of obeying God, sometimes God, God leads us to do things that are very difficult. Maybe to, to confess some sin. Maybe, maybe that you've been hiding from your parents or your spouse or something to come clean and make it right. That, that feels really dangerous. And that can be really hard. Or to forgive somebody who's offended you or to witness to a coworker, or to, to make some hard choice in a relationship. 
to persevere in some difficult circumstance, those can feel overwhelming. If we look at the task, if we compare ourselves to others, but when we obey the Lord, that honors him. It honors him. As his people submit and go in his strength, I encourage you, look to the Lord. We sang tonight a song, really a song of devotion. Lord, send me anywhere. Only go with me. Lay any burden on me. Sever any tie but the, the tie that binds me to thyself. Lord, I don't, I don't feel like I can do anything that you call me to. But if you call me to it, I'll do it. But I need you. That, that's the heart of dependence that God wants in his people. And it sounds very nice until you start. And then it gets very hard. But the Lord will help you. He will be with you. He's given his spirit to dwell in you. And praise the Lord. We, we see in this passage a God full of power and might and faithfulness to his word, but also gentleness toward his people, compassion, awareness, interest. Cast your burdens on the Lord because he cares for you. And I, I mentioned this verse this morning because it was on my mind for tonight. Paul writes to the Philippians, uh, you obeyed when I was with you. Now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's a lot. It's a lifelong task. But what's the promise? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We have a great task in obeying, one that exceeds our strength, but we have a great God who has called us to it and who will go with us through it. Let's pray. God, even as we encounter uh, a society and a people and a situation far removed from our own, we thank you that you show yourself gracious towards your people and that you really minister comfort to us as you call us to obey. You're so good. Help us to take comfort in your character. Help us to do what is right, um, even when it's hard. And we feel like we can't pray that you'd strengthen us by your spirit. Thank you for the blessing of the spirit indwelling. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.